and welcome back to Winning with Connections, the WWC Global Podcast. Frank Kushka joins us today. He's a retired Air Force Colonel and a current Vice President at WWC Global. He offers some great advice for transitioning out of the military and particularly into the government contracting space. Hello, this is Lauren Weiner, and you're on Winning with Connections, the WWC podcast. I am here with Frank Kushka, uh, who is one of our vice presidents at WWC. I will let Frank introduce himself, but we are talking today about transitioning out of the military and into the government contracting space generally, um, either as a direct W-2 employee on contract as a headquarters staff kind of back office on the operations side, managing contracts or in the BD side, because Frank has done all three of those since he retired. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Lauren. How's it going? Good. Thank you for thank you for coming on. I guess you didn't have much choice because I asked you to. <laughs> no, no. Someone told me I had to be here, but no, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to do this. No, uh, you and I have talked a lot about transitioning. Can you tell me first and foremost, kind of your your background in the military and then a little bit about uh, how you transitioned from the military, what your last position in the military was and how you transitioned out into to this crazy world of government contracting? Sure. Um, 25 years in the Air Force. I retired in 2013. Uh, I was a colonel, uh, Air Force 06, down at US SOCOM. I had three different job titles while I was there in my last four years at SOCOM. They were all essentially the same thing. Uh, I was the J7 director. I was the J79E div chief and the first FMD JCT chief. Like I said, um, it's not a it's not a different week in SOCOM without a reorg. So I pretty much had the same job the whole time I was there. Um I had uh, – it was the first job I had in the Air Force where I had significant contractors working for me. I'd had them before, but not to this level. Well, we probably had um, – I had anywhere from 250 down to about 50 uh, contractors working for me at any given time um, in those jobs. So I thought I understood contracting, mm. um, and perhaps I did. Um, but when I got to industry, I realized it was totally different. Right. So you came out and you ended up working for a firm here in Tampa, not WWC. And your first job there was was what? Uh, my first job was a senior planner. I was I was actually recruited uh, in my retirement reception line to be a program manager for an upcoming contract uh, owner of the company who I'd known for years. Um, came up, shook my hand and said, so what's your plan? And I said, finish shaking everyone's hand, have a beer and then go home. Uh, so he called me up a couple of days later, said, hey, I really want you to, to look into this. So and I did. And I decided, yep, that's the, the path I wanted to take. The problem was the contract wasn't coming up for bid uh, for a few more months. And since my terminal leave was ending and I was really retired, I said, hey, I need to have an actual job. So they brought me on as a direct, uh, as a uh, senior planner for one of the uh, exercises uh, AFSA. Got it. So you, so you worked directly on contract chargeable 
for a little while. What did you learn as a direct charge employee first? Um, the biggest thing I learned was nothing about contracting because when you're a direct, you just don't see that. Right. What I learned was that now that I'm a contractor, my rank, my position didn't matter as much. I mean, people still knew who I was. I was supporting an exercise that used to fall under me as a colonel, but um, they, <laughs> I was no longer in charge. Uh, mm -hmm. So DV day came and where I'm was normally the DV. Now I was actually, you know, putting out the cones and, and the reserve sign for the DVs. Um, my job at that particular event was to hand jam unclassified work from Cipernet and transfer it over to Nipper so that it could be shared uh, in an unclassified format. Uh, it was not what I was expecting you know, in a few weeks after I retired. Uh, right. So. Right. It's a little different when you don't have the eagles on your on your shoulder anymore or on your collar. Yep. Um, so and then you you transitioned over and I've heard you tell the story before kind of of transitioning over to the headquarters staff to, to run the contracts. I think first as a program manager and then you kind of got promoted up through the ranks from there. But you learned a lot as a program manager about the way contracts really work, right? Yes, I I thought I understood this stuff and um, I didn't. I didn't know the difference between firm fixed price and cost plus fixed fee. I was very, very fortunate to have a, a senior mentor in the company, uh, someone that I had known for years. He actually supported uh, a c previous contract I'd had when I was in uniform and, and he was the program manager on it. But now he was in the same company with me. So every day he would sit me down and go over, you know, our, I remember our first lessons were fringe overhead and GNA and what they all mean. And I think that lesson probably took about seven days for it to stick in my head because I right. could not understand the difference between overhead and GNA and, and why we were authorized to put GNA on travel, for example. Yeah, you tell a really good story about, or you have told a really good story before about getting really upset about putting GNA on travel. Yeah, and that that was back when I was a direct. So I came back from that first exercise, submitted my travel voucher, but because I was working in the corporate office in this particular direct job, um, I got to sit down with the people that that do travel vouchers, and they were walking me how to do it the first time walking me through the process. And then, you know, she said, you do this, you do that. And then we put our GNA load on there and I'm not going to go into what the percentage was, but it was, you know, it is a typical GNA load. And I was like, Whoa, no, you can't put that on there. That's too much money. And she goes, no, that's how you do it. And I, and I was adamant that this was, you know, robbing from the government, if you yes. will, because yes. I had no clue what it was. And, and she was a very junior person but she she was very nice to me and said, Frank, you just need to sit down and realize this is how it works on this side. Right. Right. <laughs> it's funny. We, for the longest time, really, for well over 10 years of, of running the firm, adamantly did not put GNA on our travel. Now, granted, we didn't do all that much travel, frankly, and so it, it probably didn't hurt us that much. But we you know, felt it was a badge of honor somehow, I don't know, to not put GNA on our travel. We don't charge a load on travel at all. 
And that's kind of dumb because it actually does take your time and your effort and your overhead dollars or your GNA specifically dollars, but your, your back office dollars to be able to manage that travel, particularly when there's a lot of travel on a contract. So it does make sense, but it's not something that most guys in uniform, whatever guys or girls in uniform would ever understand. And it's not just the travel when it happens. It's the auditing that can take place seven years after the fact when the government comes down to check it all out. And if you don't have your files done properly, it can be very difficult. And if you can't prove it, the government may say, you know what, you owe us for that. Even though we did it all properly, if you can't document it, you know, that, that's, that's the government coming, coming through on it. So yeah, it's, uh, it seems weird, but it's definitely required. Right, right. And so that was kind of an eye opener for you. You know, I know I've talked to people in uniform when they're there and looking over contracts and, and usually not when they've seen that many contracts who really think, wait a second, you should be charging what you're paying the people. Right. I've literally had people turn to me and say, but I know that Johnny is making $50,000 a year. Why are you charging $75,000 to us? You're making all of that in profit. Um, that's too much profit. You know, what, whatever the, the delta is, what, even when it was very low, we've had people say, you're making too much profit. Did you, did you understand the difference there and what was when you were in uniform and, and seeing all of those 250 contractors, did you get that, that, that kind of no. delta between what we were paying and what we were getting paid? Was anything but profit? No, I had a I had a cost contract and I saw that I saw people's names and the amount of money next to it. And I was like, wow, these these people are making two hundred twenty five thousand dollars a year. Right. And my deputy, who was the core on the contract, explained to me, no, no, no. And and he basically just said, no, there's company overhead in there. And I'm like, wow, this company's making a ton of money now. I was getting excellent work, excellent support, so I was not, you know, upset with it or anything. I was just like, wow, you know, business can make a lot of money. And like <laughs> I said, I've, I've since learned that uh, uh, profit is not in the the double and triple digits that everyone thinks it is. No, 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 <laughs> no, it's definitely not. Um, all right, so you kind of worked your way up uh, through all of that that operational side. Now for us, you're doing uh, business development. Can you talk about even what business development is and how you learned how to do it and, and, you know, what, what you bring to the table as a former military guy that helps and what doesn't kind of automatically prepare you? It's a really long question. Sorry. But what doesn't prepare you versus what does prepare you to do the BD side? So my first six years after retirement, I hated BD guys. <laughs> um, I, I had them come into my office when I was in uniform, and I always referred to them as a, as a used car salesman. There wasn't anything that their company couldn't do, wasn't an expert at, and I just I didn't trust them and I didn't like them. And while I was a program manager and vice president of operations at, at a previous company, I said I don't do BD, and and I did. I just didn't realize that I right. did do it. You're, um, you're not a used car salesman though. Well, no, no. Uh, but it was actually when you and I and and Jason were sitting around a table doing an RFP 
and I laid out all the competition and what I thought their pricing was going to be at and what I thought they were doing. And Jason said, you've just become a BD guy. <laughs> and I, I was mad at him. I thought he was you insulting me. You a BD guy for us. Uh, <laughs> took me almost a year, but or no, six months. Uh, but I finally got you to be a BD guy for us. So what, what I've learned is that um, – if you want to be a BD guy, there, there are multiple ways to do it. You could be the slimy used car salesman, mm-hmm. um, or you could be the guy that says, you know, I, I still want to contribute to the DOD. I spent 25 years in uniform, yep. and I'm not ready to just hang it up and become a pure corporate toad. Right. So I want to be able to support the government customer, but at the same time, hey, we gotta we got to make money as a business. Otherwise, you know, we're – we can't support the government if we're not making our money. Right. So I, the one thing I've learned is, you, you know, your network is critical and your personal character is critical. So just like integrity, when we were, when we were in uniform, it's that important when you're as a, a BD guy, because if yep. people can't trust you, that's it. You're done. That's just your credibility. It's gone. Yep. It's out the window. And we've all met those guys, those BD toads that you don't trust anymore because they, you know, they blatantly lie to you. And right. I, I do not ever want to be that person because um, it's just not worth it anymore. So I spend my time working, keeping my network up. All the people that I know that are friends of mine, that are business acquaintances. And a lot of times it's just making Phone calls, you know, in, in the days of uh, pre-COVID and hopefully post-COVID, it'll be coffee shop meetings, just sharing a cup of coffee and discussing what's news with you. And you know, seventy-five percent of those never right. come to come to any fruition. And it's only every now and then that you go, "Hey, wait a minute, this is something you you just talked about. I've been looking at something like that. Let's get together." Yep. And and of those 25%, maybe only 10% of those actually turn into an actual contract. But if if you don't spread your, your net wide, if, yeah. if you try to make it narrow, focus on one thing, if that one thing doesn't happen, you've got nothing to show for your work. Yep, yep, yep. And we uh, – I, I do think that there are different ways of doing BD. Uh, and I do think that there are plenty of people who do it like the use – car salesmen, you know, or making promises they can't deliver. I think there's a lot of BD and it's, it's actually why we don't separate fully operations from BD that the BD guys make promises and then hand it over to the ops guys and go, here, here you go. Go, go try to do this at a 1.3 wrap, you know, with crazy low salaries and, oh, I've promised them that they're going to get Maseratis every year. You know, so, so there are ways of doing it in this industry that are, I think the pendulum has swung a little bit from that type to more the way that we do BD. And I think that's the way that a lot of people coming out of the military feel comfortable is really believing that they can do things the right way, do things right for the customer, not overpromise and under deliver. And so it's really a question of kind of which types of firms you end up with and how they view their growth, I think, uh, probably. I mean, you and I have both seen plenty of firms that neither of us would feel comfortable 
working with, much less working for. Definitely. Um, the the other thing is I, the difference between small and large businesses. Yeah, I've worked I've worked at both. Um, my preference is small because it, it's much more of a team atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone wants to work together. It's it's a lot closer to my uniform days than uh, when I worked at a large business. Now, large businesses ha- have their perks too. Um, they have established processes. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they know how to do stuff. They've been doing it for a long time, and you fall in on their process. But the problem is sometimes the process is the process, and you can't change it. So if you need something done in you know by noon, it ain't happening. Right. And, and that can be frustrating, uh, especially with guys that come out of the soft community. Right. Um, so uh, I, I've worked both, and I'm not saying that the large businesses are bad, but I, like I said, I prefer the smalls where I can I can call up the CEO and say, "Hey, Lauren, um, this just came across the pike. What are your thoughts on it?" Right. And I can get a decision in a minute and a half, as opposed to a week's worth of staffing, right. just to find out that the that the boss says, "No, we're not chasing it." So I've just I've just wasted a week's worth of work on something that we were never going to chase in the first place. Right. 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 But a a large business for, for a new guy straight out of, out of the military, taking off their uniform, a large business can afford to keep someone like that on staff for the potential of something to come about where a small business can't. And as a small, you're going to have to wear multiple hats. You can't just say, I do this one thing. You, you got to be able to support everybody when they need the extra help. Right. right, which does feel much more like a team environment, but it, it can be overwhelming at times. I mean, you might be doing your own recruiting instead of handing it over to the recruiters for if you're with a really small business, or you might be writing your own proposals. Uh, I, we didn't have a proposal manager for, again, probably the first 12, 13 years of the company. We really didn't have a, a dedicated proposal manager. I think I managed most of the proposals. So, you know, at that point, you definitely have, you're right, multiple, multiple hats. And you've got to figure it out because there's no one necessarily there to train you, although you're probably learning from the senior leadership that's been doing it in that case. So what um, what advice would you have? So I, I think there's probably a lot of listeners here who are looking to get into a small or a large business coming out of the, the military. There are a number that are probably looking at starting their own business uh, coming out of the military. And we see a ton of guys and again, guys in the genderless context, but we see a ton of people coming out and thinking that they're going to start their own business. Have you seen that? How have you seen that work or not work well um, with guys coming out? If if somebody has a, a distinct product that they have created or, you know, with their partner, they've they've created something very specific, uh, a software program that is cutting edge. A, a hardware product, a new radio, new radio antenna, something like that. They, they can do very well. But for, for the people who's, who maybe were looking at that contract and, and saw what the cost plus fixed fee total amount was and said, oh, I can make a ton of money doing this, <laughs> not realizing what went into that figure, 
Yep. Those are the people that have a hard time. Yep. Um, because if you don't understand everything that went into them and all the other, all the other compliance issues that are required behind the scenes, uh, you, you are doomed to fail because you'll, you'll make decisions and then later on you'll pay the price when you realized, hey, there's a, there's a FAR that doesn't allow you to do that. Or right. you, you, you deducted fees that may, or you included fees in your contract that maybe you weren't allowed to include. Right. And, uh, the, the, those will take a long time. So, I mean, I've, hey, I've never started a business, so I can't, I can't poke fingers at those that do. I can just say that um, it's not easy in government contracting having to follow all the government rules. I, I one time said – I told my contracts officer in, in my first company, I said, hey, send me the FAR. I've got some time. I want to read it so I understand <laughs> it. And nobody that has been on this side – that hasn't been on this side would understand why that's funny. Um, it's like saying – Go read the IRS tax law and then yeah. you can be a tax attorney tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is definitely not. I am still learning. I'm still researching 15 years in. I, I just had to do a white paper for a proposal that we're that we're doing about the limitations on subcontracting, which I thought I knew really, really well. But my God, it took me four hours down a rabbit hole just to get to what the current state of play is on that. So, yeah. It is hard. This is not it. It seems easy. And I know I talked to a bunch of people coming out of the military. Like, yeah, I'm the, the one thing I think you and I hear consistently when we're interviewing uh, people coming out is I'm a leader. I want to be a leader. I have leadership. That is if I hear one word coming out of anyone. I don't know if it comes out of the TAPS class or just kind of generally the military, but everyone tells me they're going to be a leader. It is not easy to lead generally, certainly not easy to lead in the military, but it there are definitely different capabilities and requirements for leading in the private sector that, that the military just doesn't teach you. You can learn them, but the military itself doesn't teach you. Yes. So the military tries to teach leadership and actually will say that the, the, the military wants leaders, not managers. Right. We want both in industry. So you got to be able to lead. You got to be able to, to show your, you know, your, your office how to, how to get to that objective. But unlike the military, you can't just direct pe- people have weekends. When the clock ends, people go home. They've got their own lives. Whereas in the military, we just said, okay, we're all staying here until the job's done. You can do that in certain times in industry, but for the most part, you can't. So you got to be able to learn how to manage your office, your people's time, the mission, and and the overall company. And I've found that management is much more important in industry than leadership. You know, it's funny. I've never thought of it that way, but I think you're. I think both are important in in industry, but you're right. The management is as important. I mean, you, you don't have the rank structure to fall back on. You don't have the, it's not as clear and consistent. And so the management does matter as much, if not more than, than the leadership. I kind of like that thought and hadn't thought of that before. the, The other thing is, is unlike the military, people can vote with their feet and say, you know what? I don't like this company. I don't like this 
this uh, well, what we would call a command climate in the in right. the military. You know, <laughs> all my staff when I was in the you know at SOCOM, hey, sucked to be them. They had to be there and listen to me, and I could do it whatever <laughs> way I wanted to. Right. Um, but if I did that in my current job, I Don't people would just say, you know what, I'm going to Indeed.com and I'm looking for a job and I'm getting right. out of this organization, and right. they can do that really easily. And now I'm stuck with a you know undermanned office mm-hmm. and. In a, in a spiraling downhill uh, situation where nobody wants to come and work for you because people talk and they all go, heck no, I don't want to go there. It's, it's right. a it's a bad climate. So Right, right. So what would your best advice be to anyone coming out of the military, uh, you know, and looking to get into government contracting? Humble. Uh, it, for, for senior people getting out, um, you don't know squat about industry. And <laughs> I can say that because I thought I did. I figured that I knew how to do all this stuff. I listened to what tap class said and all the great stuff military people bring to the table. And we do. We, we right. truly do. We bring Absolutely. organization. We bring planning. But you're falling. It, it would be like me as an Air Force guy. Air Force 06 showing up as a brigade commander in an infantry division. Um, Yeah, it's it's the same rank structure, but I don't know what the heck those guys are doing over there. So um, get to your get to your first job and start. You know, if if you're working behind this in the corporate office, do like we did, and we did. Most of us who were successful in the military did this. You walk around to everybody else in the building and go. What do you do? What's your job here? And mm-hmm. how to do it? And and learn what they all do. And anything you learn in industry about as far as what HR is doing, what recruiting is doing, what finance is doing, what contracts is doing, any of that stuff you can learn is going to make you a better senior person in industry because you, you got to know how all the pieces fit together. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes a whole lot of sense. So any words of caution about getting into this industry coming out of uniform? Are there good and bad parts of of being a government contractor? And why wouldn't you think that somebody should do this? So the biggest word of caution is be very careful about taking a direct contract job in the office that you were just leading. Yep. Um, so I did that. It wasn't my plan. It's just the way it worked out. And I, I, I liked the way I was doing, and I had a lot of people that liked me and, and supported me. So now I found myself about a year after taking off my uniform and moving around this and that, and I found myself back in the same office that I had actually stood up and created. Mm-hmm. And people are going to run their organization different than you did when you were in charge of it. And there were some frustrating things uh, that I would just sit there and go, oh, my gosh, this is so easy. And some of it was because, hey, I had four years in the seat, so I knew it. This guy only had two months in the seat, so he's right. learning it. But it's not my organization. It's his organization. Right. Uh, and there are different ways to do stuff. And, you know, sometimes my way was the right way. Sometimes it wasn't the right way. And it took a little while to understand that. The other thing was because I did have a lot of guys there that knew me and liked me, they would come to me 
for mm-hmm. decisions instead of the, the, the current boss. And as a contractor, we cannot make decisions for the government. That is very hard to, to, to grasp. You, you spent your whole career making decisions, and now all of a sudden you, you can provide recommendations. Yep. You can't decide anything for the government. Yep. And as a as someone who the the staff maybe liked and liked working with, you are actually undermining the current guy in charge, yep. the girl in charge, where, um, you know, it, you're there to support them. You have to understand that. So that was very difficult for me. Um, I was never a big, you know, I, I didn't have a big ego in uniform and, and I was never that kind of guy. You, you know, you got to stand at attention because I walked in the room. I, that just wasn't me. But I was surprised how much my ego was getting hit when people were doing things differently than the yes. way I thought they should have been done. Yeah. There's, there's some positive though to taking off rank and being a contractor. You're freed up a little bit to give constructive advice as opposed to having to make the decision. You can kind of go up and down the rank structure to some extent because you don't wear a rank. And so I've seen I've seen a bunch of former military struggle with it, certainly. But I've seen a bunch of former military actually embrace it and really enjoy the ability to do a a different kind of work with a different kind of structure. So I don't I don't know if you felt that at all or if it was just frustrating for you. Um, ever since I got out of what, working with organizations that were not the one that I you know was in uniform with, mm-hmm. I did enjoy that because I, I would learn their structure and I could be that objective person going, hey, you ever think about doing it this way? Right. And if they said, yeah, we did and we don't like it. OK, fine. You know, it, it, I'm just throwing out a recommendation there. I, I, I'm here to help. Believe it or not, right. that, that's right. what I'm here to do. Right, right. All right. Well, this is awesome. Hopefully, uh, if anyone has any ideas about starting their own business, getting through, uh, you know, government contracting, uh, first and foremost, obviously, there's lots of jobs on our website always. But how do how do you get that first job out of uniform? And, and you said, I think that the former owner of the company uh, that you first worked for was the one who just came up at your retirement ceremony. How else do we get the, the people coming out of the military uh, into jobs that make sense for them within this industry? First and foremost, it's networking. Um, you, you, you gotta throw your, your cast net out there. You gotta know people. And it's not that you're, you're trying to sneak in the back door. Right. People need to know that you are, that you're now open for a job. You need to understand that in, in our industry, unless it's a very specific contract that we're chasing, you know, anything more than 30 days out, you know, we, we gotta fill our billets. So I, I don't, want you, you know, I can't hire you today for a job six months from now. Right. My assumption is that job is filled. And if it's not filled five months from now, then we can talk. Um, so you got to build the network. And in order to build the network, you don't burn bridges. Um, don't mm. walk around saying, talking about slimy contractors, because <laughs> none of us are going to want to hire you if that's your <laughs> attitude of us. Um, I actually had a, a friend in my kitchen. I was having a, a gunship reunion in my kitchen, and he was a, at the time a one star. 
And he made that comment about slimy contractors. And I'm like, do, do you all think that we took off our uniform on Friday and it was for love of God and country? And on Monday, it was all about the almighty dollar. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Yes. The funny thing is, he's a contractor right now. I thought that was kind of I funny. was waiting for that that ending because I, I knew and, you had to. And, and, and he's yeah. still a friend of mine, still a friend of mine. So don't right. don't burn the bridges. Right. But as soon as you know you're retiring, start letting people know you're retiring. Then remember the rule of three. The, the job you want, the salary you want, the location you want. If you can get two of the three, it's victory. Um, if you get three out of the three, that's it. You're done. You're, you, nobody gets three out of the three. Right. Um, so you know, go into it knowing those things and talk with your spouse and your family. Yep. What are the expectations? Just because you come to this side of the fence doesn't mean that you're going to work less hours. Sometimes you work more hours. Mm -hmm. Sometimes your your travel is extensive uh, on this side. So do you want the kind of job where you're going to travel or not? And be upfront and honest with that network, that recruiter. If you don't want to travel, don't say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm good with it because right. you won't be later on. Right. Like I said, when you're when you know you're going to retire, start socializing the concept. Mm -hmm. New opportunities pop up all the time and you need to let people know what you're looking to do. Tell them, hey, I, I you know, I just want to be a direct guy or I'm looking to be on the backside, do program management, mm -hmm. whatever it is. Start working that you've got to work that network because, quite honestly, the the HR recruiting AI systems We'll put your your application on the cutting room floor, and it's sad, and and it's the it's just the way it works. Because I have seen resumes come in of a guy who basically is a guitar salesman, but for some reason he's applied for a job as a military I/O specialist. Right. Um, the the the, the I/O systems have to be able to cut those things out and put them on the cutting room floor. And so if the job requires a master's degree and you've almost got your master's done, your application is on the cutting room floor. Right. But if you know the person who's going to be hiring that or or know somebody in that company that can go, hey, my, my buddy here is going to have his master's done in two months. He doesn't have it done now. But by the time this job is open, he's going to have it done. Here's his resume. You ought to look at him. It doesn't get you the job. It gets you the opportunity to get the job. Right. That's the biggest well, thing I've learned is that the applying for jobs, it, that's a long shot. You, right. You've got to know people in the industry. Right. Right. Go to the NDIA breakfast. Go to, uh, as funny as it sounds, the women in defense lunches have at least half men every time I've been there. And it's a great networking opportunity because that's where the, the firms are. And that's where people you may know who have gone over to the dark side will be. You know, there are a bunch of LinkedIn groups and all that kind of stuff. There's there's a number of different organizations that do a lot of this stuff, I think, that are that are really great organizations. Um, and, and we'll put links to them uh, where you guys can find them. There's Hiring Our Heroes. There's a bunch of, you know, Bunker Labs does a ton of stuff for veterans and military spouses as well in building businesses. So if that's the way you want to go, certainly there's bunker labs here in Tampa, but they're all over the place. 
There are a number of other organizations that do this, but you're right. The networking is absolutely the, the most critical piece. Well, any other last words of wisdom before we go? Um, it's, it's different on this side. Um, you, you don't realize how much the military owned you until you take the uniform off. You don't realize that you actually get a voice. Uh, you can say no. Um, mm-hmm. You can tell the boss, hey, boss, sorry, I, I don't want to do that. Now, there are, <laughs> there, there are effects of that one. The, the boss could say, okay, fine, well, I don't want to promote you to the next position. <laughs> but, but those are your choices, whereas right. in the military, we, you're going to have an order, you go do it. That's just the way it is. You go do right. it. Right. And I got into industry thinking, okay, I'm going to go work for this company that hired me, and I'll retire from them in 25 years, not realizing that you can bounce around. Now, bouncing around too much, uh, yeah. you, you could contract hopper. A lot of, lot of us don't want to hire you because we know you're going to be gone the next first great thing that shows up. And I got to go recruit somebody and hire somebody. But the first job you take doesn't necessarily have to be your last job. So get, get the job that you, you think is going to be good for you. Get your foot in the door and then start learning and things will come from that. Um, but trust me, as someone that's had to change companies a couple times in the last seven years, changing companies isn't fun either because you're learning from scratch. It, yep. It's like going to a new squadron every couple of years and having to learn all the new rules and the base policies and everything. And after a while, when you become a crusty old guy, you don't want to do that. And you just <laughs> want to have some consistency in your life. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we're keeping you with us forever, so it's okay. <laughs> You're retiring from us. So I'm hoping. Worry. I'm hoping. Well, thank you very much for your time, and thank you all for listening. Thank you, Lauren. 